to Drummers Only Radio. Drummers Only is the UK's leading drum shop with store locations in Glasgow and Leeds. Our podcasts are full of interviews, gear reviews, and much more from the unique perspective of a drum shop. The show is hosted by two pasty Scottish dudes who talk real fast. Whoa. Slow down there, Braveheart. So here's Chris, the Glasgow shop manager, and Adam, the social media manager. Be sure to like, subscribe, and let's do this. Good evening, everybody. Drummers Only Radio, episode number 56, and I am here with uh, UK drumming legend, Mr. Chris Witten. Good evening, Chris. How are you? Hello there. Good evening. Thanks Th- for having me. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Um, if you if you don't know, if you're listening and you, you don't know who Chris is or you've not been hip to Chris, uh, he has quite the CV. Um, he recorded two massive hit singles, one called What I Am by Edie Brickell in 1988, and he was also the drummer on the... Very successful, The Whole of the Moon by Mike Scott and the Waterboys, and he played on Paul McCartney's Flowers in the Dirt in 88. He's toured with Dire Straits on their, ve- I believe it was their very last tour, if I'm yeah. not, uh, and it was the On Every Street tour. Yeah. But your studio, from what I understand, your studio credits include Paul McCartney, Spring Out Sisters, The Living Daylights original soundtrack with The Pretenders. Oh yeah, that's right, yeah. The The. World Party, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, and a whole bunch more. And you're also a, a, a very well-sampled drummer now these days by lending yourself to certain sample libraries for, for a variety of different brands. So, yeah, yeah. Man, that's uh, that's quite the career so far. Well, you've got to keep busy. <laughs> so they tell me, so they tell me. Very varied, though, which is, um, I guess, the drummer's dream. Right, yeah. So how did it get started for you? Chris, because, um, you know, I, I believe you were relatively young when you were already playing on hit records. Well, yeah, sort of. I basically I had an older brother and he was seven years older than me. He used to at the end of the 60s, he was bringing all these albums home. Jimi Hendrix, um, the Beatles, obviously, um, Steve Miller Band, Pink Floyd, all this stuff, Todd Rundgren. And I just got, really got into music and then unbelievably because he was like a teenager and I was like a kid he used to take me to shows and we lived in Newcastle at the time and we used to go to Newcastle City Hall and I saw people like Procol Harum and The Nice with Keith Emerson and and when I went to see those shows I was just like absolutely smitten I loved all the gear <laughs> and the lights and it was unbelievably loud I mean this was the early days of gigging really the the drum tech used to come on stage and nail the bass drum to the stage (laughs) because they didn't have drum rugs or anything like that they used to just nail wow i absolutely loved it and at that point i was about 12 or 13 i just thought i just want to play music and every time you say that to people they think oh it's all about the girls and the Mm -hmm. money and the fame and everything no i just loved i just loved the whole you know, the the lights and just, you know, being on stage and playing music and mm. everything. I just love the whole aspect of it. Mm-hmm. The whole package. And so my parents my parents moved from Newcastle to South Wales and I, I changed schools. And the school that I went to was really heavily into rugby and not into music. And it was a bit like that old movie, Kes, if you've ever seen it. I used to run along the touchline, oh, terrified that someone would throw the ball at me. <laughs> and, you know, thinking about my hands. I can't afford to break a finger. Yeah. I'm a drummer and all that. So 
as when I got to 16, obviously those days you could leave school at 16 and I found this music college, Leeds College of Music, mm. and you could go there when you were 16. So I went there when I was 16 and when I was like, when I'd been there a couple of years, 17 and 18, I was doing gigs in London. I was doing like dance hall wow. gigs in Sheffield and everything. So I was like a working drummer by the time I was like 18 or 19. Yeah, That's pretty amazing. Um, not many people get to, to sort of do that that way these days you can't just abandon studies and go and sort of become it sounds like almost you were an apprentice of it you know yes yeah that relative sort of early age to learn the skill set to take you forward into your career yeah. um you've you've played with a variety of amazing artists sort of um i, I don't want to say heritage artists but these some of these artists are really yeah, like that they've, right. been, they've been around for a long time and they've, yes. their, their contribution is massive do you have to vary your approach when you play with these people? Yeah, you do really. Well, it was, I wasn't told to, but I just, I just thought it was the right way to go. Like, um, well, by, by the end, towards the end of the eighties, I'd done quite a lot of studio work. When I started doing studio work, I just hated my drum sound. I couldn't work mm. out what was wrong with it. And then after a convoluted few sessions where it didn't go right, I realized I'd never played rim shots I, did, I was using the wrong heads on the drums and I was tuning them all wrong and everything. Mm. So I completely changed my whole setup. So I was playing ribs like my favorite drummers were like Jeff Beccaro, Andy Newmark, and it mm. was all really solid American playing heavy mm. on the bass drum, heavy on the rim shots. That was the 80s thing, really. And so when I got to the end of the 80s, that was my style and that's what I did for mm. everything kind mm -hmm. of thing. And then so when I got the audition for Paul McCartney actually was playing fifties rock and roll. And I just knew the music. I was just lucky that I'd listened to little Richard and Chuck Berry and people like that. And so we, I just got this phone call. It's another massively long story, but I just got this phone call out of the blue. Um, could you be at this warehouse in East London at three o'clock on a Friday? And I said, yeah, fine, no problem. So I went there, set up my drums, a bunch of other people I'd never seen in my life I didn't know <laughs> and then Paul and Linda McCartney breezed in and he wow. strapped on the guitar and said oh should we play some 50s rock and roll and like, oh okay and he just started saying right Lucille and wow, tall okay. Sally yeah, and all yeah. this kind of stuff and I just happened to know more or less know the idiom and so I played that kind of music as best as I could and then you know, I, to cut a long story short I passed the audition <laughs> so then we started doing the Paul McCartney album and it was all you know, current stuff. So I was playing mm -hmm. my current way of drumming. And then when we got to talking about doing the tour, Paul said, I've never really played a lot of Beatles music before, but I really want to do some of the Beatles songs oh, wow. on this tour. And it just felt to me that the only way you could play that material is to try and play it as close to the way Ringo played it as possible. So I, I on those songs on the tour, I did completely change my style. I played a lot more busy. It was a bit more jazzy, lighter more center hits. It wasn't yeah. the Jeff Beccaro kind of way of playing. Did he appreciate that? He never really said. <laughs> I mean, a lot Good. of people, a lot of people like musicians that saw that show have appreciated it. I've had a lot of people afterwards saying, man, I saw that, especially in America, man, I saw that show in LA. You just were brilliant. And I loved the way you played the, the Beatles stuff. And then I, I got to meet Ringo a couple of years ago well about five or six years ago i got to meet ringo wow. and 
my friend Greg Bisnet was playing drums with him. Yeah. And um, he said, oh, Ringo wants to say hello. And he never says hello to anyone. So it's a, it's a passive honour. And so he just breezed into the dressing room, said hello to me and gave me a hug. And then he sort of breezed off. <laughs> then, then Greg afterwards said, I think he really appreciated the way you were, you know, you, you played the songs the right way. And you really tried to make it sound like Ringo on the tour. I think he really appreciated that. That's why he wanted to meet you. So I, I don't know. Oh, no wow. one ever said. That's amazing. So did you? Did that mean that you retroactively found out Ringo was there? No, he didn't. He just, you know, it was everywhere. It was on TV. We were on TV. Oh, all the time. okay. Understood. Right. Understood. He just heard it through the grapevine. I don't think right. he ever came to a show. No, I don't right. think Okay. He, none yeah. of them. George Harrison was alive at the time. He didn't come to a show. But Yeah, I don't think you could play it any other way. I don't, I don't know that that would work. You know, and I, I, I don't know that... He's one of those drummers that you can't really put your own stamp on it. Yeah, I mean, my thing is always to do what's right for the song. You know, so yeah. if you're doing the long and winding road or let it be, hey Jude and those things, I just want to play the drums that are right for the song, which I think is with the way Ringo played it, really. Yeah. And totally. that's on that tour, you know, a lot of it was the first time Paul had played a lot of the Beatles stuff, and especially in America. You know, the demographic of the crowd was like the baby boomers. It was people 50, 60 years yeah. old, and they came to hear those songs. And it would have been terrible if they'd said, oh, the song was great, but the drumming was totally inappropriate or something. Yeah, so totally. that's just the way I felt about it. Totally. You, um, having done some sort of research on you and have watched some interviews and stuff, you, you strike me as a guy who's very details-orientated and, and, and wants to get certain things right. Did you have any trouble getting sounds like you're going from playing Paul's music and playing it the way you want to then playing these famous songs. Did you have to change the sound quickly on the stage or did you have another kit or did you just make do with what you had? No, it was kind of before, it was before the internet and it was before right. drum drum leaps and <laughs> yeah. it was before people started, you know, sampling Jabba Starks and all those yeah, sort of yeah. things. And So I actually said to the sound guy at the beginning of the tour, I said, you know, on the modern, because we were doing a lot of contemporary stuff like later wings stuff and Paul's solo material. I said on that stuff, you know, you get your modern drum sound. But then when we do the Beatles stuff, it needs to be a completely different bass drum sound because it wasn't on those early recordings. It wasn't an in your face modern bass drum sound. It was more of a softer jazzy bass drum sound. And I said, you know, can you have a different section? Can you have another mic and a different section on the desk and then switch to a different section on the desk and have a softer bass drum. Yeah, no problem. But, you know, I never went out into the crowd and heard it. So I yeah. don't know whether he ever actually, we had two <laughs> mics on the bass drum. I don't know whether he ever bothered to do it. You know, and now, when I, I mean, like 10 years afterwards, I think it's crazy. I could have used like a DW remote pedal and had another <laughs> bass drum, which a lot of people do now. They've got like two bass and like a 20 inch bass drum and a 24 inch bass drum. I could have done that or I could have used like um, reinforced it with samples, so yeah. I could have had a softer sample or something. There's lots of things you can do now. Actually, like 15 years after that tour, I was writing music for film and TV, and it was all the rave, all the um, craze, Massive Attack and DJ Shadow oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and um, uh, Soul to Soul and Bjork and everything. And so, you know, I really got into like retro drum recording and, mm. and that I realised, oh, you know, I could have done that with Paul. I could have used more <laughs> retro techniques, and but I just didn't really. 
no one before the internet no one really told you this stuff you just had to figure it out for yourself yeah totally that's everywhere yeah and you know there's i guess back in those days it would be a finite amount of gear that you could take with you because you maybe wouldn't have had the same connection shop to shop or, or with distribution around the world to, to just say can you put this in for me here so that we don't have to bring it you know yeah yeah all these things are very different for that now well, i guess i mean the McCartney tour was money, no objects. Oh, really? so <laughs> we had like 15, 15 Arctic lorries and wow. 150 crew. So if I'd wanted something, I probably could have had it. That's amazing. And I said to, um, I was endorsing Zildjian at the time. And I said to them, you know, I, I need like a Ringo ride. Uh, I mean, the modern, the craze at the time. Well, I was using K dark symbols, which were great. I loved them. But the rides were a bit heavier and pingier. Yeah. And I said, I really need like a washy ride for all these Ringo tracks where it's just like a, a harsh wash on the cymbals. And so they went back to the factory and they went through a bunch of cymbals and they came back with like a K jazz, 20 inch K jazz ride, which actually did the trick. And but now again, like everything's moved on. I could have used a Carope or I could have used mm. a K Constantinople, but they weren't doing those at the time it's all changed but that's what i would do now i'd find a nice carope or a, yeah. or a cape constantinople okay, with the advent of the internet you could have probably found a symbol that was from that era. yeah yeah that's right i mean it you was know. before ebay even mm-hmm. this stuff try and find some vintage gear um i watched the video that's on your youtube channel about the recording of the hole of the moon i think it's wonderful i think that that right. s- song is one of my favorite songs I've, I've played it a bunch and it was really interesting to hear how the sessions were going, you know, like right. you, you turned up and it was kind of uh, not, uh, it wasn't easy by, by the sounds of it. Um, as, a, as, a, as a drummer that has to meet people and get to know them quickly, how do you overcome that where, you know, it's not always going right or it's pressure and how do you get through that? Well, it's not always like that. By the way, I might have to have a, I've got a, it's alcohol free. Oh, do your thing. Do your thing. I'll have to have a drink because I get a sore throat talking. (laughs) No, I mean, usually, well, I used to be like a freelance studio drummer. So when people hire you, they want you. Yeah. And so you walk into the room and you're already in their good books kind of thing. I once did a session. I think Jeff Picaro did a Steely Dan session. He said, it's not working, man. You need Jim Keltner. I'll go home, don't bother pay me. Well, I did a session once for a guy called Paul Stavely O'Duffy, who I used to work with a lot. He was a really great record producer. Well, he still is. And we worked on this song for about two hours. And every time I went in the control room, he said, oh, it's not quite right. And can we change this? Can we change it? After about four or five hours, I just said, look, Paul, it's just not working out. I'm not the guy for the gig. Get something. And he went, no, I want you to do it. So we persevered with it. Anyway, um, so mostly people want you to be there. But what happened with the Waterboys was Mike's favourite drummer was Kevin Wilkinson, who played with China Crisis. And well, he, he started out with the Waterboys, then he, he went to do China Crisis. And Mike sort of never really got over that at the time. He just wanted Kevin to do everything. And Kevin wasn't available because he was in America with China Crisis. So I knew Carl, the keyboard player, and Carl recommended me to Mike. But Mike didn't like the fact that I'd been to music college and all this kind of stuff. And I played in fusion bands. So I was already on the back foot. So we did a bunch of shows and they went down really well. And everybody said, oh, great drumming and all that. 
And we came to do the album, the This Is The Sea album, and we went down to Parkgate Studio for two weeks. And the first two or three days, we were working on a song and nothing was right about the drums. Mike just said, oh, the bass drum part's wrong. I don't like the snare sound. And I don't know whether it was a combination of not liking me or whether he was nervous to start the album and he was looking for excuses that he wasn't quite ready to do the album yet. So we spent about two weeks and never really got anything done. And the frustrating thing was you'd work on a song all day and it recorded at 10 o'clock at night and everybody go, that sounds great, brilliant. And then you get up in the morning and Mike was already listening to it and we're going, oh no, it's not right. And then you'd have to start it all over again. So I did this two weeks. I don't think they wanted anything that I'd done. And then I just said, well, that's my two weeks. I'm going home and good luck with it. And it was about two or three months later, I got a phone call out of the blue from Mike's manager. They're working on a track at Amazon Studios in Liverpool and they need you to play drums on it. I was really mystified. So, so anyway, I couldn't even drive. So I, I chucked all, but this is the, before the internet and all the rest of it, and before Uber, I chucked all my drum, my entire drum kit into a taxi and got him to take me to Euston Station and then got all my drums out of the taxi <laughs> and onto the train on my own, which involved sort of leaving expensive snare drums on the platform while I got other stuff on and nobody stole anything. It's Listen, incredible. I've been that soldier. I've been that soldier, <laughs> man. Yep, absolutely. So I went up to Amazon and I got into the studio, set up the drums, and they played me, we're, were working on this song, and they played me the song, and I was just amazed because it just sounded like Prince, like wow. 1999 yeah, yeah. or something. And I thought, you know, I'm not very good at this Celtic folk rock, but this Prince stuff is right up my street. <laughs> so I was really excited about it. And they said, well, let's just try the drums then. So they played it down one time, and I, I really loved it. I loved playing it and I got to the end of the song and they said, oh, that was great. We don't really need to do anymore. And I said, well, let me do one more. I'll just do some different drum fills and yeah. I, I probably could play it a bit better than I did. So we did another take and they said, yeah, that's great. We're really happy with that. And I packed up the drums and went home. And it was just like a weird thing that the first time I worked with Mike Scott, he didn't like anything I did. <laughs> and it took two weeks to do one song. And then the second time I worked with him, he loved it. And it only took two hours to do the wow. song. So, and I think what it was, I don't know, there's lots of weird stories about Carl and Mike and that track, The Hole of the Moon. My feeling is that Mike never thought it was going to be a big hit. My mm. feeling was he just thought it was going to be another track and he didn't, and it was more of Carl's baby. Mm. And Carl was more concerned about getting it right. And so Carl didn't, and so Mike didn't really care that I played drums on it because he wasn't passionate uh, okay. about the song. Anyway, the record company heard it, thought it was amazing, said it was going to be the first single. <laughs> and then it just started shooting up the charts. And it just, it was hilarious. The only time that Mike ever let me just play the drums and be myself was the biggest hit they ever had. Man, you would think there's a lesson in that for me, but <laughs> whether or not he learned it, who knows, you know. Um, yeah. Um, it must be funny though for your confidence, especially as a, a if you're new to the game or you've not been doing sessions a lot, or to to spend all that time two weeks working with somebody for the, for them to just be like nah, and then phone you and be like come on in that that must play with people's heads. Well, the thing was I was doing around that period I'd started to do some quite good studio work, the swing out sister stuff, and, <laughs> and so. 
I kind of thought, well, you know, if you don't want me, that somebody else does. And I know I can do this. That was the thing is, I know I can do this. And so it's not my problem, it's your problem. Yeah. And the strange thing was, it was before, it was before Pro Tools. We were still recording to tape. Oh, right. Okay. Like wow. That. Okay. Yeah. And so I quite often got called by record producers. I'm working with the band and I don't like the drummer. Can you come and play the drums? And so even at that time, when, when Mike was saying, I don't like what you're playing, I was going to other studios where the producer was saying, I don't like this drummer. Can you do it? So yeah. um, I, yeah. did a, I did the first Hipsway album. Right. Wow. The okay. same thing. Yeah. Man, it must, uh, yeah, I guess in that respect, then it very much becomes it's, it's not me. It's sort this them for whatever reason you know i mean i kind of know when it is me like that session that i told you about with paul stavely o'duffy it was like a shuffle thing and i'm not very good at it was like a go-go track and i'm not right, yeah. like very good at that kind of thing and i was really struggling with the feel and i, I know when i'm not cutting it but the mike scott stuff the first Waterboy stuff it was it was basic rock and i knew i could play it and he yeah. was just fine he was just trying to find an excuse to not like what I was doing because yeah. maybe he thought if I stall this week, Kevin Wilkinson will be available next week and I can get him to do it. I don't know. Fair enough. There's not many guys would um would put their hands up and say that I'm not suitable. That's quite interesting to me. Um there's there's a lot of people that would just find a way to shoehorn it in and, and finish the session and whether or not they're replaced they probably never ever know. But it's it's quite fascinating that you're well, you're very very um, willing to tell producers. I don't think I'm right. Yeah, well, yeah. I just I mean, when it gets to that stage, when you've been playing the same song <laughs> for like four or five, like basically, when you were a studio drummer in those days, you had to nail the song in like three takes maximum. Mm. You might spend half an hour to an hour getting a drum sound, and half an hour to an hour playing the song, and that mm. was it. You were done. Mm -hmm. I mean, I did whole swing out sister albums in a day, wow. just going from one song to the next. Yeah. And so, you know, with with Paul, he was a good friend and I knew he was a really good producer. And I just said, look, uh, you know, this is ridiculous. We've been working <laughs> on this song for four hours. Get somebody who's really good at go-go beats. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but no, he said, no, I want you to play drums. So we did it. And it was it was a good track at the end. Um good. It got sampled, actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> there you it go. It got sampled by Young MC in the early days of hip-hop. It got sampled by an L.A. rapper called Young MC. So that's one of my... I was one of the early drummers to be sampled. There's so I was a, quite pleased about that. Yeah, there's an irony for you. Yeah. Uh, when, when you were playing for bands like Dire Straits, um, again, you, I, I can't, sorry, I can't remember the name of the track off the top of my head, but you put a video on your YouTube about playing a particular track that Carol had played on. Um, it had like the brush train beat and uh, yeah, the, the bow deadly thing. Yeah, thank you. Um, Jeff Picaro. Yeah, amazing. So when, when you when you're cutting or when you're playing those tracks with a band like that, and you've you've you're hearing what Jeff and these guys have done, is it very much? It's got to be note for note when you're taking that out, or is it? Do you, do you no, want to put? Know. Do you want to do your own thing on it? I, I'm you know because I don't really know how all that world works. You know, so well a couple of things. I'm. I, I just like playing music and I like playing what's good for the song. So I've mm. never been one of these, I have to be me kind mm. of people. I see on the internet, lots of people talk about, you know, finding your own sound and finding your own style. And you have to be an individual to work in the industry and all that. Well, that's never been me. I think the only people 
one one drummer in every generation is an individual like John Bonham, yeah. Steve Gadd, people like that. They're yeah. individuals. Everybody else is just much of a muchness. And if we can <laughs> if we can be good and work, you know, that's the key. So really, I am me because I used to really like Billy Cobham. Mm. And then I used to really like um, Prairie Prince, the drummer with mm. the tubes. Mm -hmm. And then I really like Jeff Beccaro and Andy Newbart. And when you put all those influences together, it turns into me. I don't sound like Jeff Beccaro kind of thing. Yeah. I think the only problem is when somebody somebody says, I really like Neil Peart, and that's all they ever try to be. Yeah. They're not influenced by any of the drummers. So mm. we're all the good thing about Beccaro is he says we're we're standing on the shoulders of everyone who's come before us. Yeah. And so he's not afraid to copy John Bonham for Rosanna or something no. like yeah. that. Yeah. Or totally. um forgotten his name anyway uh he's bernard not, purdy yeah bernard purdy he's not afraid to copy those people but he still sounds like jeff yeah so i've done the mccartney tour was like a life wasn't a career high it was a life high <laughs> and i thought i'll never be able to rebake that souffle and so i wanted to go back to i wanted to go back to studio work which was what i was doing before mccartney i really enjoyed doing studio work because it was different music every day and yeah. different stuff and um when i got the call to do the dire straits thing i wasn't really keen and it was a year and a half on tour which mm. was a bit of a frightening prospect and i'd also heard that mark was really hard on drummers was a real he didn't think any drummer was good enough and so i mm. thought do i want to put myself through that and so eventually, my ma I had a manager at the time. And he said, well, go and meet them. So I went to Air Studios in London to meet them. And they were mixing the album that Jeff Beccaro had played on. And they played me the tracks. And I just loved what Jeff had played. It was, again, it was just right up my street. And, and I thought to myself, I'd really like to realize these drum parts on tour. I'd really like to mm. play Jeff's parts on tour because I really like the drum parts. And there was that calling Elvis with the Bo Diddley beat. And, and I just really liked it. So that was what convinced me to do the tour in the end. And um, just to, well, the previous, the bigger album, Brothers in Arms, that had Omar Hakim on drums. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, I'd love, I'd love Money for Nothing and things yeah. like that. I'd love, those were my, those were my hero drummers at the time, Omar Hakim and, and Manny Cachet and Jeff Beccaro, and they were the drummers that played on those last two Dire Straits albums. So that was the basis that I took the tour. I, I want to play those songs live and do them justice as best I can. I mean, they're all t terrible drummers, those guys, eh? They're yeah. Really bad. I know. <laughs> well, Jeff came, Jeff did come to the show. Oh, wow. I'm glad I didn't know until afterwards, because I probably would have been complete jelly. How, but, was, um, did, how was that then? Did you get to hang? Well, no, and I mean, it was just really unfortunate because yeah. um, he came to the show. I didn't know he was there. This was in LA, of course. He came to the show. I didn't know I was there. I did the best show I could as usual. And we went back to the hotel. I went back to my room and got changed, had a shower. And then I went back down to the bar. And just as I was coming down the stairs, past me walks Jeff Beccaro, arm in arm with Mark, talking to Mark. And I said, oh, hello, Jeff. And he, and he said, oh, man, you were killing. And I said, oh, you're oh, my wow. hero and everything. And he was deep in conversation with Mark. And I thought, it's not my place to become the third wheel in a yeah. conversation between Mark Knopfler and Jeff Beccaro. So I said, oh, I'll see you later then, Jeff. And I never saw him again that night. 
And again, one of my good friends is Greg Bizonet. And I said to Greg, oh, I saw Jeff last night and I'd love to have a proper chat with him sometime. Next time I'm in LA, maybe we can meet up with him and have a proper chat. And Greg said, yeah, that's great. I know Jeff. And then, of course, he died. Oh, man. So I never actually got to talk to him. It's still a cool story, though. Like, just, yeah. Any it was so nice of him, yeah. you know, yeah. because yeah. he could have, he, you know, who am I? And he could have walked past me and said, oh, hi, Chris, and just walked on. But no, yeah. he said, oh, man, you were killing. And, yeah. I, and I said, oh, Jeff, you're my hero. And he went, oh, great, man. And he was just so, <laughs> he was such a positive guy. Yeah, and it was cool. such a nice thing to say, really, which he didn't have to say. Because yeah. he was in the middle of a conversation with Mark. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Um, I'm going to change uh, gears ever so slightly, and um, I noticed that you have a various, a various, a very obvious love for Noble and Cooley drums. Um, uh, yes. Because we're a drum shop, so it kind of pays to talk about drum gear. Um, is there what what brought you to a drum brand like that? Because they're not, you know, you could probably play anything you like now. You yeah. know, with the kind of career you've had and the people you've played with. And so what is it? What's the attraction to those drums? I was doing, like I said, at the end of the 80s, I was doing studio work. Mm -hmm. And the the studio, the go-to sort of studio snare drums were like the Ludwig Black Beauty mm -hmm. and the Superphonic. Mm -hmm. And so you always had to take those. If you had eight snare drums, you always had to at least have a Black Beauty and a Superphonic. And... I read an article in Modern Drummer magazine or something that this American company had remade a clone of the Slingerland Radio King. Right. And and Radio Kings were notorious because they were like oversized or they were different. You couldn't get a head on them or yeah, they were too yeah. small and the head was too big. And, <laughs> and out of every 10 Radio Kings, one would sound good. And they were quite <laughs> expensive drums to buy. And so when I read that this modern company had remade the Radio King, I thought I've got to get hold of one because I don't really have a really good wood snare drum. Mm. And so I was I, would, I was playing with Julian Cope, the band Julian Cope, and we were in New York and I went into Manny's and they had a mm. Noble and Cooley solid snare drum. So I bought it and brought it back. I think it was about $800. It was quite a lot even then. Yeah. I brought it back and I started using it for sessions. And then I got the, the Paul McCartney gig and I was doing the album and we had all these incredible producers Trevor Horn mm. Mitchell Froome Jeff um, Jeff Emmerich worked on some of it George Martin worked on some of it and so I was I was alternating like the Noble and Cooley snare drama the Ludwig Black Beauty and it was all sounding good and then um we talked about doing the tour and I I I think I phoned, I must have phoned Noble and Cooley and said, it's a shame I'm doing this Paul McCartney tour and I can't really endorse Yamaha or Tama because I don't want to use their snare drums. And this is a thing. I know people, <laughs> I know people do that, but it's not yeah. my style. I know Phil Collins plays Gretchen. He's known for playing a Noble and Cooley snare. Right. Jeff Beccaro um, endorsed Pearl, but he often used a Gretsch yeah. kit and all this, yeah. but that wasn't my thing. And so I, 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 I said to Noble and Cooley, it's a shame you don't make drum kits because I don't want to endorse another brand and use your snare drum. So I'll have to play someone else's snare drum and that's really going to bum me out. <laughs> and, they and they said, oh, we've just designed a drum kit. We've got a drum kit. Oh, wow. So I said, well, could you, could you send me one? 
And, and they said, oh, yeah, no problem. And I signed an endorsement deal and they sent me a free drum kit. And it was this Star Series kit, which was all single ply. The bass drums ply like uh -huh. a normal bass drum, but all the toms are short stack like snare drums, like single pie snare drums. So they sent me this kit and it was kind of perfect for the Ringo stuff because the toms weren't big and thuddy, which was the thing in the 80s, the square 10 uh -huh. by 10 yeah, yeah, yeah. toms. So it was kind of perfect for that. And so I, I played all Noble and Cooley. And the thing was, when you're doing a big tour, if something goes wrong with the kit, this is why people endorse like Pearl and Tama. If you're in outer Mongolia on a Wednesday night, and somebody drops your floor, Tom, you can ring up Tama and they'll get you one in two hours kind of thing. Whereas Dublin Cooley just didn't have that, you know, you were stuffed if you, they were in Massachusetts and they didn't have any spare drums. So it was a kind of risky thing to do. But anyway, we did the whole tour. Lots of people loved the drum sound. Lots of people commented on the drums. And actually really, and I met them when we went to America, I went to the factory and met them for the first time. And it was just a family. It was Jay and Carol, and then Bob Gatson who designed the drums. And oh, it was wow. really, it was really virtually them and a, and a two or three people working in this Victorian, a bit like a mill in Manchester kind of thing. It was mm. like a Victorian industrial building, and they were really, really nice, and I really liked them. And they were not music industry at all. They were, they were, you know, just like down home normal people. <laughs> Yeah. And so I thought, oh, I'd really like, I really like the fact I'm associated with these people and I want to stay associated with them. And when the Dire Straits tour came up, they said, um, well, the Star Series drums are so complicated to make and they're very expensive to make. And we have a lot of failures. And so we're going to do more of a mainstream kit. And I said, well, that's perfect because I'm doing this massive year and a half tour with Dire Straits and I need more of a mainstream kit because Jeff Beccaro played on the album and it was like 10, 12, 13 and 16 toms and 22 inch bass drums and everything. And so they said, and so I said, well, can you send me a kit to play on the Dire Straits tour? So I got this Horizon series kit, which is more, it's basically like a normal kit, but it's got an inner ply of mahogany. And I just, when I played it, I just absolutely loved it. And it's still my number one kit to this day it's is that the studio. yellow is that the is it the darker colored one it's in your video yeah it's it's like um they the plies are horizontal which right. is on you bob gatson was a bit of a crazy mad scientist and he came up with this idea of having horizontal plies and then it's all maple and then the final ply on the inside of the drum is mahogany and it gives it like a warmer sound yeah. and i just love the sound and um so I took that on tour and again, people loved the sound. It really sounded great on stage. And yeah, and that was kind of, I kind of half retired from drumming at the end of that tour. <laughs> Cause it was so, it was a brutal tour. It just went on and on and on forever. And it was a massive show. And uh, at the end of that tour, I kind of thought I've got to find something else to do. Cause I can't do the, I mean, it was before, it was before in-ear monitors mm. and things like that. So my ears were really starting to go bad towards the end of the tour, ringing ears and things. And it's quite punishing being on tour anyway with the flying every day and, and bad food and no sleep. And I mean, the other thing is on those tours, McCartney, Dire Straits, 
you can't, you know, there's no partying because it's just mm. so tough, the tour, mm. you know, you've got to be fit. And mm. it's like being an athlete, really, especially yeah. in the drumming. So, so kind of my, my kind of official association with Noble and Cooley ended after that tour, but I, I, I'm still friends with them and I still always use their drums. So mm -hmm. yeah, that, that is my kit is the horizon kit. And I've still got a star. You'll see on the YouTube videos that I still play those drums. Yeah. They sound amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. Um, I noticed that you, you set your cymbals up relatively high. Is that a recording yeah. thing? It's a recording thing. Yeah, yeah I figured yeah. it might be that. Just I wasn't sure if it was a recording or just a physicality. You know, you don't have to. You, they're, they're they're within reach at a certain height. You know. I don't know why. I I think well, I had this, as I said, in the early eighties, where I started to do studio work. I had a few disaster sessions, <laughs> and the engineer hated my drum sound, and I hated it when I heard it back as well. I couldn't work out what it was, what the problem was. And then I did a session with Jerry Marotta. I was working on this. I was working with this Italian artist who was a massive Peter Gabriel fan. Mm. And he said, and he said, Chris, I want Chris, I want you to play drums on three or four songs. And then I'm going to get Jerry Marotta in to play on three or four songs. So uh, that's a bit of a bummer. <laughs> anyway, I went to the studio on the days that Jerry Marotta was there. I went to the studio and he's such a nice guy as well. And he set up the drums. He started playing in the room and I thought, and I said, these drums sound awful. There's all these, <laughs> there's all these harmonics. It's ringing like crazy. The snare's buzzing like mad, and it sounds terrible. And then I went into the control room, and the recording engineer said, "Amazing drum sound, don't you think?" And I, I, it's not amazing to me. But then when they started to play the music, the drum sound was just massive. Yeah. And I realized I'd been kind of doing that thing that a lot of amateur drummers probably do. I'd been boxing my drums up into a tiny space and putting mm. gaffer tape on them and making them sound as perfect as possible. But then when you put guitars and keyboards on them, it sounds like you're playing cardboard boxes. Yeah. And so you really needed that huge, big open sound to compete with all the guitars and keyboards. And he played all rim shots and he refused to play any cymbals. That was the other thing. He was playing oh, with really? Peter wow. Gabriel. And the, the producer said, you know, we need a couple of, we need a crash at the beginning of the chorus and a crash at the outro, outro and Jerry Rodder said, I'm not setting up any cymbals. Wow. Well, that was quite funny. <laughs> and they, I think he set up, in the end, under protest, he set up two cymbals and he hit them like twice in a wow. song. Yeah. And and also I read an interview at the same time with Andy Newmark where he said that his philosophy was less is more. The least you can play on a song and still make it work is the is the best way to be. Yeah. And so going back to my symbol, and Andy Newmark's symbols are about five foot above the kit. And he only he plays two toms and he's got two crashes and a ride. And I just thought, well, that's just amazing that he can work like that. And so I, I started sticking my symbols up and the recording engineer is saying, that's great. I can't, I'm not getting a load of sim, trashy symbols in the tom mics. And also, if you have them up higher, you're not tempted to play them all the time. You know, I just, yeah, I totally. literally just play them on the downbeat of the chorus or something. Yeah. And what I, what I found when I was recording was um, I would, when I was doing all these sessions, Swing Out Sister and things like that, they'd play me the song. I'd go into the room and do a rundown, first take of the song, come back and listen to it. And I, and I would think to myself, I could take half of that stuff out. <laughs> I played too, too many drum fills, too many cymbal crashes. 
And that was how I got, and that's how I was successful really, that people just play, you just played the right amount for the song and you're not noticeable. People aren't going, oh, there's another flipping drum bill. Oh no, there's another cymbal crash. And it's quite yeah. amusing when you watch people on YouTube doing covers, they mm. hit the crash cymbal every four bars. Yeah. Yeah, and then, for me, if I can hit it three times in the song, that's enough. It's an interesting lesson to learn, isn't it? Where you realise that you're just—it's like you're just talking over someone all the time. It's funny because I—I've—I've been in situations, recording situations where it's been original music in a band situation where we've worked on it, but we record once every three years and we play live all the time. Right. So you very quickly got to get your head out of that space. Yes. Well, playing live, you have to do more playing live because it's entertainment and people want to see excitement. So I probably play twice as much live as I would on a recording session. I play a way, way more, way busier fills, more fills, more cymbal crashes because you're putting on an exciting show and people want to be interested. But when you're doing a record that you that you play once in your life and then people are listening to it for another 50 years you do as little as possible really yeah. to not li- get in the way of the song i've listened to myself back and be like why did i hit that symbol it did nothing for the music it did nothing for me but it's now there it's now if anybody hears it it's there all the time i did that on the first take but then when we went back and did the second take i remembered not to not to hit it as an, i'm just going to steal that and just put it in the back of the brain now for the next time i do it so. um I think, if I'm right, you were one of the earliest drummers to get into the sample game by, like, through, like, VST software and working with brands yeah. like Toontrack. So how were those experiences? Because that must have been new. Did you get to pick the gear or was it all? Yes. Oh, yeah, wow. Amazing. Because I, I know that some people, it's it's the producer that does it, isn't it? It depends who they're actively sampling, if, if, they're, if they're actually sampling the producer or yeah. the drummer, you know, but that must have been great. We kind of were the producer. Oh, right, <laughs> Me okay. and um, Peter, Peter Henderson. Henderson. Yeah. See, I met him working with McCartney. He was a recording engineer, co-producer on some of the McCartney stuff. And uh-huh. So I met him on that, and I stayed friends with him through all this period. And after the Dire Straits tour, I started doing, I set up a, a home studio, not for drums, but for like MIDI gear. I set up a home studio for doing film and TV. And as I said, like all this DJ shadow and massive attack stuff. But when you're doing something for the BBC, you can't sample a groove off a record because it's not copyright and you can't Mm. clear it. Mm -hmm. And so I had this problem that all these film editors were saying, can you do something like this DJ shadow track or this Bjork track? And and I, I I didn't have a library of loops to use it so basically peter and i every few months we book a studio for a day in london and just record a bunch of drum loops with crazy microphones i mean that was the thing at the time it was all like weird stuff like trashy yeah. trashy american soul records and things so we'd put two mics in front of the kit and or put a mic through a guitar amp or something and then i'd set up whatever drums and i was buying drums on ebay like weird drums and taking them to these sessions and so over a course of about a year we probably did about 20 sessions at 20 different drum uh, recording studios and i edited them up into loops to using my film and tv and then i was looking on this um gear forum and somebody said has anyone tried drum kits from hell it's a new drum sample library and i'd never heard of it and so I started researching into that. And again, this was early days of music forums, early days of YouTube and everything. There was hardly anything out there. And then I did a bit of research 
And I found that these, these people in Sweden had multi-sampled a drum kit to use on their own hard rock records. They, they needed samples for their own hard rock records. And so I sent them an email and I said, oh, my friend Peter and I have been doing a lot of sampling in London. And what we do is completely different to you. We're doing like retro, like drums in, uh, drums in drum booths. And it would be a really good compliment to your big room rock drums. And they said, that sounds great. We want to do it. And so we booked this studio in London for four days. And they all flew over from Sweden. And I just took my drums. I had, I had quite a few drums because I was doing this stuff with Peter. I had about... Four, four kits and probably about 20 snare drums and everything. And so I, I just took my drums to the studio and we spent four days sampling. And I mean, I didn't know what I was letting myself in for. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I know that you, you interviewed Matt Hector. Yeah. And he was, he was very positive about it all, but it was just, <laughs> it's quite a nightmare doing it because I can imagine as you, you, uh, they say, right, we're going to do this there. Medium hits. You go, but, and then you have to wait a minute for all the toms to stop ringing. And then you go up again. And then, yeah, that, like he said, it's like an hour and a half on one snare drum. It was a and, long and days, You've man. got like 12 or 24 snare drums to do. An hour and a half of just doing single hits on a snare drum. It's not musical. I mean, the thing was, the end result, it's, it's exciting, the end result. It's exciting that other people are using your drum sounds yeah. and people appreciate the product so yeah we were the first we were the first expansion they ever did they did the they did they did drum kits from hell which was like on a cd rom and then they they invented this vst plugin and they got neil dorseman the record producer and pat thrall and near z the drummer near z in oh new yeah, york. yeah 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 they went over to new york and they did the drum the main core library with them and that was at the same time that I was emailing them about working in London with me and Peter. And so we did the very first expansion. So for like a year or something, they only had two packs, the core library and our expansion, which was called Custom and Vintage. Yeah. And I mean, there's all kinds of rare stuff on it, like the Noble and Cooley drums from Dire Straits and things like that. So I mean, it's, it's still one of their, their biggest things, right? It's still it was there. their biggest yeah. selling library for quite a long time. Yeah. yeah, You did the Kicks and Snares EZX as well, and that's bonkers yeah. big. That's huge, that library. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, the, I mean, Peter, well, we all do music in our own studios and everything, and, and Peter said, I've got a great idea for a, another drum sample library. Everybody does three or four kits and maybe 10 snare drums, and that's the library. He said, why don't we do a library, which is only bass drums and snare drums, and we'll just, we'll just go to like 20 different studios and record 100 different snare drums and 100 yeah. different bass drums. And so we didn't quite get that far, but we did work in about five or six different really good studios, and we even recorded some stuff at my home. And we record, and we were renting drums, and we were borrowing drums, and we got another drummer in to play some stuff. So we wanted to make the most varied library, so that if you're working, if you're working with a tune track library, say Hansa or yeah. something like that, yeah. and you want to find some new snare drums for it, you just go through our library, and there's like 38 snare drums to choose from, or something. <laughs> yeah, you know. it's bonkers. 
Bob. I mean, that's what everybody does on a record. The bass yeah. drum and the snare drum are the most important thing on the record. Whether the toms are any good or not is a bit beside the point for most records. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I th- I've, just, I've been speaking a lot to people like Simon Edgus and like, you just wouldn't know now if you're not trained, if your ear isn't trained well enough that like 95% of what you hear now is sample replaced anyway. Yeah. You know, there's there's probably not, I mean, a, a live drum on it anywhere, you know, there's so much of the radio has been redone or things like the snare drum on the chorus is wildly different from the snare drum on the verse and then on the bridge. Yeah, yeah. And so, so it's, it's amazing. Um, I recently got Superior three and it's it's pretty terrifying how how good it is you know it's yeah i think it's the best around for all that stuff you know how did you get involved with roland then because you're also you're also part of the tm6 pro um, sample pack which i've just picked up recently actually i've just picked up one and it's it's pretty amazing as well so how did you get involved there really good well because um i was living in australia for a while and I didn't know anyone, and some um, Simon Ayton, one of the Roland guys in Australia, contacted me and said, oh, what are you doing in Australia? I said, I'm just kind of bumming about, really. And, <laughs> and he said, oh, come down to the office. You could do some stuff for us. And I, and I said, well, I don't, I don't really endorse any Roland products. And he said, oh, we don't care. Just come down and do some stuff. You know, we do, we do videos for kids or we have weekend workshops. People would love to talk to you. So I started doing that a bit. And then Simon was telling the people at Roland headquarters, there's this guy, Chris Whitten, he's got years of experience making drum samples. He's made drum samples for TuneTrack and people like that. We really should get him involved in some of our products. It probably took about five years. Anyway, um, Jules, the yeah. <laughs> main yeah. guy in the UK, he eventually called me up and said, we're, we're we're probably going to do a new drum sample module for drummers to use live. And everybody's been talking about your name and we wondered whether you'd like to be involved in it. And so yeah, I said, great. I had a meeting with them and everything. And the guy came over from Japan to meet us and we booked real world studios and um, we recorded the acoustic drum library. Uh, we ended up working at Real World and then we worked at Rockfields where they did all the Stone Roses and Matt did his tune track sampler. Classic drum rooms, basically, classic drum rooms. And we recorded again. I had a load of bass drums and snares and, and a few kits of toms. So then Jules bought his kit and we rented some drums. And so we tried to make it as varied as we possibly could. And then they took all the sounds back to Japan and put them in the box. And I didn't know what it was going to be like. And anyway, they sent me one and it's just got an amazing sound. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of digital stuff and everything, people criticize the sound, but they're so punchy. The TM6 is really punchy and really it's designed, the sounds are designed to go with your drums. And so you're not really supposed to trigger the bass drum from a from a pad you can do if you want you're supposed to trigger it from your bass drum and so actually if you add one of our bass drum samples to your own bass drum in a club or a, or a theater or something like that it just becomes monstrous it's just amazing it is pretty startling um i, I mean it i think if if you're buying one i think it would it wouldn't hurt if you had an understanding how to use all that stuff and a bit of front end work like a keyboard player would do when they buy a new keyboard to make it right but once you get it dialed in for you like tuning up the the sample to be the same resonant frequency as your actual drum so that it's not 
sort yeah. of way. But yeah, it's 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 pretty it's pretty amazing what you can do with it. You know, it's so I take it is that all the acoustic sounds in there are yours then? Pretty much. I think there might be a few from one of their older libraries, and there might be a few from Michael Shack. Right. I know Mike and uh, Michael and Kaz were the Kaz. Yeah. Were the, were I think the they did a lot of electronic. They did a lot of the hybrid stuff, like the yeah. process sounds, and a lot of the electronic stuff. And I think some of their acoustic stuff is in the acoustic library, but the bulk right. of the acoustic library, the drums that are meant to sound like a drum kit, they are they are <laughs> what we recorded at Real World and Rockfield. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a pretty cool video on Roland's site of your session, so I'll I'll make sure that we we put it in the 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 that we link it and all that so people can see a bit of the process because yeah. there's a shot of you shouting through which Noble and Cooley drum you're hitting yeah, and stuff. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty cool, man. I mean, the good thing the good thing about it was the tune track libraries, you have to like sample 200 hits for a snare drum, yeah. whereas this is like more of a single hit that's meant to go with another drum. So we only we only recorded like 10 samples and, and picked the best one or two. Yeah. of each drum so it really wasn't it was more fun it was less mind-numbing it was more fun <laughs> just going rattling through a load of different drums and getting yeah. them to sound good it was just really good fun and we went into the the stairwell at, at real world and all that kind of stuff to get a really huge reverb and and things so um i mean it, it's got six triggers and so if i was using it on tour I'd probably have a bass drum and a snare being triggered. And then the other four I'd have on pads for effects and, you know, like claps and percussion and stuff like that. Because toms, you know, live, people don't really say the toms are really important for no, this gig. Yeah. You know, the snare and the bass drum are like really important. And the thing is, when you're working with these modern artists, you know, uh, like Pink. Yeah or uh, Ariana Grande and everything, they want to have the album sound. So you're probably changing bass drum and snare drum on every song. And you yeah. can do that with a TM6. You can load up all the album sounds and change them on every song. And then have, yeah. and they'd be triggering vocal parts and percussion as well. So that's what I'd probably be doing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You're, you're also, you've got your CP samples thing now as well, don't you? That you do, you've put out sample libraries for the TD50 and you yeah. did you put another one out for the TM6? We've got one for the TM6. Because yeah. the one thing that I thought was when it came out, because because of the um slightly the limitation of how many drums they could put on there, you can have a lot of bass drums and snare drums, but for every tom, you have to have another three toms kind of thing. Yeah. So they ended up they ended up with like 30 bass drums and 29 snares, but only like five sets of toms because it adds up to 25 drums kind of thing. So I yeah. thought, I said to Peter, we should do we should do some of our own sounds and I, I offer people more toms because that's probably the only thing they're going to miss. And I also, I had been sampling drums since the 80s. I did a Julian Cope album in 1986 with the producer Warren Livesey. And he said, can I sample your drums? Because I bet they'd be really useful producing the album. And I'd never, I'd never even heard of it before. And yeah. so we, we had this drum kit set up and it sounded amazing in the studio. And he took single samples of all my drums. And he said, here's a copy. He gave me them on a DAT and I've still got all the DATs. And, I, and then from then on, every session that I did, I resampled my drums. I did some sessions with uh, Owen Morris that produced Oasis and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Johnny Marr. And I sampled the drums on that. 
And so I said to Peter, I've got all these dats of my drum samples going back to 86. Why don't we, you know, give those to people as well? So we've done those for the TM6. And then um, Simon Ayton in Australia was saying, you guys have got to do something for the TD50. People, people are always saying they want more sounds for the TD50. So we've ended up doing the same thing. We've done more samples, sample library for the TD50. I know people do libraries for the TD50. It's more tweaking the internal sounds. Yeah, yeah. We really more put our samples on there because it's that that's what we do. It's more unique to us. And you know, some of these samples have been on records in the 80s and everything. I just think it's good to have them out there. So yeah, if you go to cpsamples.com or is it .co.uk, you might be both. <laughs> we'll link again, we'll put the website yeah, yeah. into this so that people So you can, can get there's a the TD17 expansion library, the TM6 and um, the TD50. And we're actually going to have a, a discount sale over the last couple of weeks of November for Black Friday. So if anybody wants to take advantage of the sale, yeah, that's the yeah. time. And that, that, I will add that they're pretty reasonably priced as it is. So uh, you're getting an absolute bargain if there's if there's going to be a sale. on. So well, The funny thing is that people don't know who we are. This is uh, the funny thing. And the stuff that I did was in... The 80, McCartney and Dire Straits was 87, 91, 92. I used to go into a drum shop in towards the end of the 90s. I used to go into a drum shop to buy some sticks. And um, they'd say, oh, do you pay by card? And I'd say, yeah, I'd hand them my card. And they'd look at it and go, are you the Chris Whitten? <laughs> and, uh, and I'd say, yes. Then, like ten years ago, I go into a, the same drum shop, hand them my card, and they go, "That'd be twenty nine ninety nine, thank you," <laughs> and hand it back to me. So, no one, no one knows who we are anymore. We've had our time. Well, I don't know, man. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I, I still think there's more left in the engine, so we'll we'll just just keep going and we'll see. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. Well, listen, mate. Thank you very much for for coming on. I really appreciate it. If people want to find you, where can they find you? If they want to like what websites and stuff that you've got to let people know. Well, I'm mostly day to day stuff. I'm mostly on Instagram, and okay. that's Chris Chris Whitten Music on okay. Instagram, and then I've got a website, chriswitten.com, and I'm actually I've set up a home studio. And I'm doing remote drum tracks for people. So if anybody wants any drum recordings played by me, you go via chriswitten.com. And then the, the drum samples is CP samples. Brilliant. Yeah. And a, a pretty strong YouTube channel as well. So Oh, yeah, that's right. Got, I'm on YouTube. I don't know if that's Chris Witten music as well, I think. But yeah. it's all linked from my own website and from my Instagram and things like that. Beautiful. Well, we'll be sure to make sure that people know where to find you. Thank so, you very much. I th and thank you, mate. I really appreciate you. you taking a time out for me. So um, take care. If you're ever in Glasgow, the, the door's always open. The coffee's oh, always on. So, yeah, um, all the best and, and take thank care. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Drummers Only Radio. You can find us online at www.drummersonly.co.uk. Drop us a line. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Drummers Only UK. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. We're on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. Any questions, info at drummersonly.co.uk is the email. Or if you need leads, it's leads at drummersonly.co.uk. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Drummers Only.